Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the uh, pastors here. Welcome to the Parkway Church. As Mike just read, we will be in uh, Romans 11, uh, verses 17 through 24. We have, for the entire year, been walking through the book of Romans. This will be our last for a couple of weeks. Uh, the next couple of weeks, we will kind of turn our attention and, uh, and affection to considering the incarnation of Christ. So we'll take a two-week break from the book of Romans, but then we will be back in it for uh, the next six months uh, or so. So as we come to verses 17 through uh, 24, I want to begin with a story or actually kind of a collection or an anthology of stories about a roommate of mine uh, named Wes. I've told a, a number of stories about a number of roommates. I had a lot of roommates in college. Uh, I've not told any about Wes in particular because I wanted to save it for the right moment. And I think that is now. So these are a series of, of stories about uh, my roommate named Wes. And all of them involve him eating weird things. And, uh, and so uh, the first story, one time I am leaving for the weekend. I'm uh, headed out of town. And as I'm walking out the door, he is walking uh, in from work, and he is carrying this industrial-sized tub of Airheads. Are you familiar with uh, Airheads? It's uh, kind of like a taffy-like candy. And uh, so I didn't think anything of it at the time. He had gone shopping at Sam's or something like that, and so he came in. Uh, and I didn't uh, even give it a second thought until I came home at the end of the weekend, and the tub was completely empty. Uh, Wes had eaten the entire tub, again, this is an industrial-sized tub, of five pounds of, uh, of taffy-like candy over the weekend. In fact, that is the only thing that he ate all weekend for 48 hours. No four food groups, no food pyramid, just straight-up airheads. That's first story. Second story uh, about, uh, about Wes, there was a time I had made some brownies, and as uh, I'm waiting for them to cool, I decide to go and run some errands. Uh, so I go and I run errands, and I come back about an hour later, and the pan is entirely empty. Wes had come home from working at Applebee's and had uh, eaten the entire pan of brownies. I am not sure what part of that story is the worst. And so you can decide for yourself which part is the worst. The fact that uh, this guy would eat somebody's food without asking. The fact that he ate like 2,000 plus calories of brownies within an hour in one sitting. Or the fact he worked at Applebee's. They're all bad. But uh, that was my second story. The third story, this is actually the, uh, the best, I think, story, involves Funyuns. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Funyuns. They're not chips. They're an onion-flavored corn snack. They're shaped like rings. That's why they get the, the fun in the Funyuns. And, uh, and so uh, being a college student, I loved Funyuns. But also being a college student, I couldn't afford such luxuries as, uh, as Funyuns. But occasionally, I would save up and I would splurge. And so I had done so. I had purchased some. And, uh, and so one day, I'm in my apartment and I'm um, watching a movie. And in walks Wes. And he is just eating my, uh, my Funyuns. And so I look at him and say, hey man, just so you know, it's fine, you can have some, but just so you know, those are mine, and so save me some. He mutters this sort of sarcastic thank you, and, uh, and he just keeps eating them, and keeps eating them, and keeps eating them. And so after a couple of minutes of this, the bag is nearly empty, and so I look at him, and I say, hey man, stop eating my Funyuns. And, uh, and then he says something I totally didn't anticipate at all. He said, or what? 
So then my mind's racing. I have no idea what kind of ultimatum I'm going to throw out. And so my mind starts, uh, as my mind's kind of racing, my eyes are darting around the room looking for some way to sort of strengthen this threat I've apparently made. And uh, I see there's a a spoon on our uh, coffee table. And so I said, or I'm going to throw the spoon at you. And, uh, and so he looked at me. You ever watch uh, Shark Week? And, uh, and so right before like a shark uh, will attack something, its eyes roll back in its head. That's kind of what happened uh, with Wes. And all of a sudden, he just takes the bag and he dumps it uh, right on his face. There's just Funyun crumbs. It's, it's like a feeding frenzy in Shark Week. Except instead of uh, blood and chum, it's just Funyun crumbs going everywhere, down his shirt, uh, all over his face, uh, and uh, all on the carpet and all that. And, uh, and so I grabbed the spoon, and that's the story of how Wes got stitches above his eye. <laughs> now, I, I, do, I don't tell that story in order to say this is how you should handle domestic conflict or anything like that, but it does kind of illustrate the point of uh, Romans 11, 17 through 24, uh, in a sense. Wes was like a first century Gentile. We've talked about this before, but just as a reminder, in the first century, the world was classified, if you're a Jew, the world is classified into two types of people. That's it. There's various ways you can classify people, but if you're a first century Jew, you classified the entire world on the basis of Jew or Gentile. If you are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you are a Jew. If you are not, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your race is, no matter any of those kinds of things, you are considered a Gentile. We've talked about that a number uh, of times before. And, uh, and so everyone else is considered a Gentile. And as Wes is kind of partaking in some sort of blessing that's not originally his, he didn't actually own those Funyuns, so we see in this passage that Gentiles have come to faith in Christ and they've been grafted into a history that is not theirs. They are partaking in a blessing that is not originally theirs. And just as Wes kind of grew arrogant and proud and presumptuous and boastful, and he suffers the consequences of that arrogance, as the proverb says, pride cometh before the spoon. Well, that's kind of Paul's concern here in Romans 11 with Gentile Christians. They're partaking of all of these rich blessings of Israel's history. And those graces are not originally theirs. They're partakers in all the promises that are pledged to Israel Uh, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And yet there is this concern that they might grow proud, that they might grow arrogant and conceited and uh, think that they are better or more worthy. And that's the reason that they are chosen and grafted in. So Paul writes this uh, section as a warning against that presumption of privilege. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive into the passage uh, together. First, just want to ask you to pray for yourself. Just ask that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And then would you pray that for those around you? Your spouse, your children, your parents, friends, the strangers who are sitting in front of you, whatever it might be. And and then lastly, would you pray for me? That I would be faithful and bold in proclaiming God's word. So, Father, we're grateful for an opportunity this morning for us to dive into your word. We confess that it is authoritative, that it is uh, true, that it's inspired, that it's inerrant, and that it's sufficient. And so we ask that you would use it, Lord, to sanctify your people 
Incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, 17 and 18. Again, Romans 11, 17 through 18, which says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So last week, if you were here, then we concluded with this image of a root and branches. I'll throw that uh, up on the screen Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul picks up this imagery and this uh, use of the word root, and he expands it here in verses 17 through 24. Now, you don't need a doctorate in first century agrarian uh, practices or anything like that in order to understand what he's doing in this uh, analogy. There's just a few things that you need to know about it. The first thing that you need to know is that there are various varieties, there are various types or species of olive trees, and each of them uh, have sort of different benefits. Some of them have really strong roots, but they're less fruitful. Others are really, really fruitful, but they don't have very strong roots. Others are particularly disease-resistant, uh, and, uh, and on and on we could go. There's all these different varieties of olive trees, and each of them have uh, their own strengths and weaknesses. And so it was uh, a particular practice uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, farmers to take various aspects of one tree and to combine it with another tree. They would take a shoot and they would graft it in to another tree so that the kind of resulting hybrid would take on the benefits of both kind of like uh, ancient genetic modification or something like that. And so the goal is to take the benefits of one and to graft it with another. And so Paul is not necessarily saying this is the best agrarian practice. He's not saying anything like this. Paul's intent is simply to say this is a practice that you would be familiar with in the first century and that the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and the church in some sense is like this practice of taking a wild branch and grafting it onto a cultivated olive tree. That's what uh, Paul is going to say, that the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in redemptive history is similar in some sense to this practice of grafting. So he uses the analogy of an, a, an olive tree, and he says that Israel is like an olive tree. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you would know that this is kind of a familiar theme, that we see that throughout the prophetic literature in particular, where Israel is often going to be compared to an olive tree, and, uh, and then... The, that being the case, there is this added New Testament dimension that we see here where that olive tree is going to possess not only these natural uh, olive branches, but also these wild olive branches, these unnatural olive uh, branches. And so the natural branches that we're going to read about as we get to verses 21 through 22, they represent ethnic Jews in general. So anytime you see a reference to a natural branch, think someone who is ethnically Jewish, all right? The reference to nature, what is natural or by nature, simply indicates that Jews have this biological or this natural relationship to the root. Last week, as we talked about the meaning of the word root, we saw that it probably refers to the patriarchs. So the Jews, the natural branches, are naturally, they're biologically related to the root, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But 
according to this passage, some of those natural branches have been cut off. They've been severed from the rich root of the olive tree. And these represent unbelieving Jews. Now, has every individual Israelite been severed? Of course not. We talked about that uh, last week or or two weeks ago, that God has preserved a remnant within uh, Israel, including guys like Paul, Peter, the other apostles, the thousands of people that are saved uh, at the, the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. So not all the natural branches have been severed, have been cut off, but some of them certainly have, as we have seen over and over. In fact, it's one of the themes of the book of Romans. Salvation is never on the basis of your genetics or your genealogy or your ethnicity. Salvation is always on the basis of God's election and His grace. So why have some of these natural branches, some of these unbelieving Jews been severed from the tree? As we've been walking through the book of Romans, we've seen a number of ways that we could answer that. The first way that we could answer it is by thinking of it from a uh, sort of divine perspective. That is, from an eternal perspective of God, in which case the reason that some Jews are severed from the tree is because of divine hardening. We saw that in uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10, that God has mercy on whomever He wills, and contrary to that, He hardens whomever He wills. That's the first reason that we could say that some are uh, severed or cut off uh, from the tree. The other perspective is not the divine perspective, it's the human perspective. It's what you and I can see, and, uh, and the reason for that is unbelief, that they are severed by unbelief. So these two different perspectives kind of answer the question, why are these unbelieving Jews severed, cut off? from the rich root of the olive tree? And the answer is because of divine hardening and because of human unbelief. And we've talked about this a number of times before, that the Bible was going to uphold both of these things as being true and complementary. Those aren't in any sense contradictory, and yet the Bible is not going to solve fully that tension for us. So I don't know the answer of how God can be utterly and ultimately and completely sovereign over who is and who is not saved. And at the same time, God can hold us absolutely responsible for our sin. And yet the Bible certainly teaches that. So that's something you wrestle with. Welcome to the club. Every one of us in this room wrestles with that to some degree. But we would love to chat with you. We have a number of resources. So let us know if we can help you as uh, you kind of walk through some of that. So we've seen that the natural branches are ethnic Jews and that some have been cut off. They've been severed from the tree and its roots. But there are also in this uh, analogy, in this imagery, there are also what he calls wild olive branches or a wild olive shoot. And they have been grafted in. All right? These uh, kind of represent Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. They're not biologically related to the root and thus they're wild or they're uncultivated, or they're unnatural branches, depending upon how your translation uh, might have it. And so as a result, there is now this mix of natural branches and unnatural branches. Even as within the church, or the spiritual Israel, as Galatians 6 would call the church, there is this mixture of Jew and Gentile. That's all intro as to what this imagery, this analogy is, uh, is doing here. But the main concern of this passage, and he gets it uh, at the very beginning, the main concern of this passage is arrogance. Now ask this question, 
Why is it that Gentiles might become arrogant? Why is it that Paul is concerned that Gentiles might grow arrogant? Because they feel like they are the bigger, better deal, perhaps. That God traded a future pick in next year's draft. That God cut a current player in order to make room for them on, uh, on the team. And so they think they have a little room to boast. A little room to be proud and presumptuous and arrogant. And so Paul is going to give a number of reasons for uh, believing Gentiles to not become arrogant. I'm going to summarize just a few using the first person uh, pronoun because I would imagine the overwhelming majority of us in, uh, in this room are not ethnically Jewish. And so the first reason, the first reason that we should not become arrogant or proud or conceited about our place, our position uh, on the tree is because we are unnatural, uncultivated, wild branches. In other words, this isn't our original heritage and history. This isn't our story. We've been grafted into Israel's history and heritage. We are partakers of the nourishing root of Israel's history. Notice that he talks about branches being cut off. He doesn't talk about the tree being cut down. There's a difference there. God isn't starting over as if Israel is plan A and the church is plan B. There's only one plan. The Christian faith that you and I have, the church runs through Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It runs down through the patriarchs. We're co-heirs of the promises that are given to the patriarchs, ultimately pointing toward Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason we shouldn't become arrogant is because we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book of Romans that we are saved, we are grafted in only by grace through faith. We have nothing in which to boast. We've seen that over and over again. There is no innate condition that you or I meet that influences God's love for us. There's nothing that we do or don't do that influences God's choice of us and God's love for us. A third reason we shouldn't boast or grow arrogant is because God hates pride and presumption. He will not be mocked or belittled. And fourth, it seems as though there will be a day in which God lifts this hardening decree over Israel, and at least many Jews will be saved as well. We'll see that further as we walk through uh, chapter uh, 11. So that's what we're going to see developed over the next few verses. Let's look at 19 through 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Let's start with an illustration. Uh, I love Tim, you love Tim, Tim's our worship minister, but imagine, if you will, that uh, for whatever reason, Tim begins to think a little bit too highly of himself, a little bit uh, too big for his britches, and so one day he shows up on a Sunday, he steps out of his Prius, and, uh, and he's we wearing leather pants and this sh sort of sheer shirt, right? And then he walks up to me, and I make fun of him, as I obviously would, and, uh, and he says, uh, hey man, I need you to go really short on your sermon so the people can have what they really want, which is a little more Tim time. All right? Now, best case scenario, he's having some sort of diabetic episode or something like that. Uh, and I'm sympathetic towards that. 
But I tell him, hey, man, you have to change. Like, you can't wear leather pants on stage. And, uh, and so no one is going to be able to concentrate. No one is going to be able to worship. Uh, and imagine that he says, you know what, tough. And so I said, okay, man, then you can't lead worship this week. And so in a moment of desperation, I then go to Carl and I say, hey, Carl, man, I know this is not your gig, but man, I need you to just lead us in a couple of songs of congregational singing. And so Carl thinks, you know what, man, I've always wanted to do this. Carl has a uh, master's degree in French horn performance, so he literally toots his own horn. (laughs) And so imagine that Carl begins to think that the reason that he got this opportunity is because he's better than Tim. He's more qualified than Tim. He should be not only the family minister, but also the worship minister. So he goes and he beats up Tim and takes his leather pants. All right? Now, this is a little bit of, uh, of kind of a, a, an illustration of what's happening here, that Israel has been severed for pride. Israel has been severed for arrogance and unbelief. And these Gentile Christians are in danger of exercising that same pride and arrogance. In my scenario that I set up, Carl wasn't chosen because he's actually better or more qualified. Well, neither were the Gentiles. That's not the point at all. We might be tempted to think that we're grafted in for some reason other than grace. But Paul says this isn't a bigger, better deal situation. God doesn't trade up, so to speak. Israelites were cut off so that Gentiles might be grafted in. Paul says that much is true, but why? You're missing the point. Not because Gentiles are better, not because Gentiles are smarter, not because Gentiles are prettier, not because Gentiles are more worthy, but solely, completely, purely, wholly because of mercy. The fact that God rejects some Jews doesn't imply at all that He prefers Gentiles. But pride is this primal sin of humanity. We've seen that throughout the book of Romans. In fact, in Romans 1, we saw that the fundamental primal sin of humanity is that we fail to give thanks to our Creator. We fail to recognize that we are dependent, desperate creatures. And we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon our Creator. So Paul is going to warn Gentiles, lest they boast in their present condition... As he had previously warned the Jews in chapters 2 through 4, he warns the Jews lest they boast in their past heritage. He says there's no room for boasting within the church whatsoever. By the way, I don't think that Paul's only concern is with the Gentile arrogance regarding unbelieving Jews. You could read this and just think he's just concerned that believing Gentiles might look at unbelieving Jews and boast over them. But I think Paul has a bigger concern than that. I think Paul, Paul's concern is that Gentile believers might even begin to boast over uh, Jewish believers. Might begin to say, look what's happening to your countrymen. God must have rejected you and your kind. Remember, Paul's concern in the book of Romans is not just this hypothetical, the way that Uh, that believing Jews might relate to unbelieving Gentiles or the way that believing Gentiles might relate to unbelieving Jews. Paul's concern is division within the church. We'll see that especially as we get into uh, chapters 14 and 15 uh, in Romans. And so his concern is that uh, believing Gentile believers might boast even over uh, their uh, Jewish brothers in the church. We've seen over and over again in Romans that there is no room for, uh, for boasting. 
that Jews can't boast that they're the original people of God, that believing Gentiles can't boast that they are the new and improved. In other words, there are no normal Christians or platinum Christians. There are only Christians. In fact, Paul is going to go into great detail uh, about this in, uh, in Galatians 3.28 where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians 12.13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Or Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There's no class distinctions or ethnic distinctions in which to boast. There is nothing else to boast except the free and unconditional grace and love of God. And so Paul says, rather than becoming proud, rather than becoming arrogant, rather than boasting in these sorts of things like our ethnicity or our current status or whatever it might be, instead we are to only boast in God's grace. And rather than becoming proud, he says that we are to fear. What does that mean? We spend a lot of time as a congregation walking through fear as we walk through the book of uh, the Gospel of Mark a couple of years ago. Uh, but Paul's not talking about phobias like a dread of spiders or clowns or a fear of uh, flying or public speaking or anything like that. He's instead talking about this sort of healthy reverence and respect. For example, think about this. Think about going to visit new parents in, uh, in the hospital. Anyone who's walked by our preschool knows that you have a lot of opportunities here at uh, Parkway to go visit new parents in the hospital because we are constantly cranking out babies. There's just a swarm of them all the time. So uh, you go to the hospital and you get that moment where you actually get to hold the newborn baby. So tiny, so fragile. And I don't know if you're like me, uh, but I am having to tell myself in that moment, don't drop this baby. All right? Now... I want to set your mind at ease if, uh, if you're currently pregnant and you're wondering whether or not to let me come to the hospital and hold your baby. I'm not planning on dropping your baby. It's not like I'm in the elevator and I'm like screaming at myself and slapping myself in the face saying, don't drop this baby. I'm not having to talk myself out of dropping your baby. But at the same time, I'm also not presuming upon that. I'm hopefully not growing arrogant. I'm not going to take your baby and say, hey, look at this cool trick and do some infant juggling skills or something like that. I'm not going to run some laps or run up and down the stairs uh, with your baby. Why not? Because there is this level of respect. There's this caution. There is this fear. And that's what uh, Paul is talking about here. The kind that says this gift is too precious to presume upon. You should treasure it rather than treat it lightly. Paul is saying that Gentiles should recognize how good the kingdom is, how good it is to be grafted into this olive tree, and how severe the consequences of pride and arrogance are. And that knowledge should lead us to this healthy level of respect and reverence that we call fear. So he says, don't presume upon God's grace, don't grow proud, but fear, especially in light of what he writes in 21 through 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
there's three things I want to talk about here. First one, what we should fear. Second, why we should fear. And the third, how we should fear. So what, why, and how. So first, what? And Paul says we should fear being cut off. Now before we move on, I want to talk about what that does and doesn't mean. In particular, what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. Recall what we read in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And then 38 through 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just from Romans 8. We could have read dozens of other passages which would clearly teach that you cannot lose your salvation. If that's not clear to you already, go back and listen to those sermons and allow those sermons to, uh, to minister to you uh, from Romans 8. He says that all who are called are justified. All who are justified are glorified. In other words, none fall through the cracks. And that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which means we cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. So if it doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation, what does it mean? Well, this is functioning as a warning. That's Paul's intent, that it would be a warning to you and I, a warning against pride, against presumption, against arrogance, against these sorts of things. And think about the purpose of a warning. Think about all the different warning signs you might encounter uh, on a regular basis. A yard with a sign that says, beware of dog. A big bumper sticker uh, on a truck that says, this vehicle protected by Smith & Wesson. Or an electrified fence with a sign that says, do not touch. Or a sign that says, falling rocks as you drive through uh, the Rockies. The problem with the way that some of us want to read the warning passages of Scripture is that we assume that if the Bible says that you might be cut off, as it does here, that that must mean that some will be cut off or can be cut off. But we don't do that with other warnings in life. Think about some of the signs that I just mentioned. For instance, when you put out a sign that says, Beware of dog... Does that mean that you're just thinking it is inevitable that at some point my dog is going to eat a couple of people? I'm just going to live with that fact. Hopefully it'll save five or six, but one or two, certainly, Buffy's going to eat them. No, you don't think that at all. You think the reason that I put out the sign is so that Buffy never eats any of them. Well, that's similar to the warnings of Scripture. The warnings of Scripture are the means by which God protects and prevents His people from doing the very thing that He warns them against. Does that make sense? The warnings of Scripture are the means that God uses to protect and to prevent His people from doing the thing that He warns them against doing. When, God, when the Bible says that God will cut you off, that doesn't mean that some will actually be cut off. It means that God's warning is the means by which He preserves you from being cut off. So those who are saved will pay attention to the sign. They see a sign that says rocks ahead, and so they pay attention, they take heed, and they swerve accordingly. Those who don't love and trust Jesus, those who aren't truly saved, they just completely ignore that sign, and they're crushed by a boulder. 
when it comes to the various warning passages in Scripture, we need to recognize that there are two different perspectives that we can uh, talk about it. They're written from the perspective, not of God's eternal perspective. In God's eternal perspective, He knows all who are His children, and none of His children are ever cut off. But the problem is that you and I, we don't know God's eternal perspective. We don't know who is and is not a believer. We don't ultimately know uh, the condition of anyone's heart. So even here at Parkway, I know a number of you. I know your stories. I've heard your stories. I've heard your testimony. As part of the membership process, you have to share your testimony. You have to write out your testimony. We do our very best to make sure that we don't actually admit anyone into the church who's not a believer. And yet, we don't uh, guarantee that we have a 100% success rate in that. It's entirely possible that someone who is an actual unbeliever would slip in uh, to our ranks uh, unnoticed. And so this is written from the perspective of mankind. And from man's perspective, we don't know who is and is not saved. And so how you respond to the warnings of Scripture is a litmus test for whether or not you actually do love and trust Jesus and submit to His Word. Do you recklessly presume upon God's grace? Or do you humbly and repentantly respond to it? So that's the what. The danger of falling away is a warning that God uses to humble us and to keep us walking in faith and fear rather than pride. Let's see the why in regards to our fear. And the passage says that God will not be mocked. If God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will He uh, spare you. In other words, don't presume upon God's grace. Some Jews were tempted to think, some Jews were tempted to believe that God would never cut them off And Paul thinks that some Gentiles are going to be tempted to think the same. That he went through all this trouble for me. So it doesn't matter how I live or what I do. That's not faith, that's presumption. Israel assumed that because they were Israelites, they were safe. But not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, as we talked about in chapter 9. Likewise, not all who go to church are the church. In fact, not all who are members of a church are actually members of the church, the body and bride of Jesus Christ. Only those who love and trust Jesus and tremble at His word are saved are truly grafted into God's grace. So take this warning to heart. And the way that we do so, how we do so, is by considering the kindness and severity of God. He says, note then, or uh, literally see then the kindness and severity of God of God. It seems as though every one of us in this room, if I ask you to raise your hand, which one you tend to default toward? Do you see God more as kind or you just see God more as severe? I think every one of us in this room would default towards one or the other. Some of us see Him only through the lens of kindness. God is like Santa Claus. God is like our generous grandfather. God is like a genie. Others of us only see God as being severe. He's like this harsh teacher or this drill sergeant or something uh, like that. But the Bible tells us that we are to look upon, that we are to consider both. Again, that's literally what the word translated as note means. It means to see, to look upon. So imagine, if you will, that we're looking at God through binoculars. And through one eye you see the kindness of God. And through the other eye, you see the severity of God. And Scripture is telling us, don't close one eye or the other. 
Don't neglect his kindness in favor of his severity. Don't neglect his severity in favor of his kindness, but instead look upon both, consider both. Because when we attempt to deny one or the other, we dilute one or the other. So beware of reducing God to a caricature. Now before we move on, I want to just deal with a kind of a, a pastoral word on this issue of being cut off. This warning passage and others like it in Scripture. There is a way that reads all of the warning passages that you encounter in Scripture, especially in, uh, in the book of uh, Hebrews. There's a way to read passages like today's passage and other warning passages that leads entirely to feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation. You see that sign saying, falling rocks ahead. And so even though you just drove 15 hours to the Rockies, you think, there's no hope. I might as well just turn around and drive home. I'm never going to make it. The mountains are throwing rocks at me. So that's what you do. You just turn around and you drive home. That's how some might read this passage as well. This warning of Scripture, as if Paul's goal is that you just mope through life, constantly introspective, constantly feeling condemned, constantly questioning and doubting your salvation and worrying that you might be cut off. And that's not the point at all. Falling rocks ahead doesn't mean go home. It means to pay attention. Likewise with this warning of Scripture. It doesn't mean to give up. It means to press in. It means to pray. It means to take heed. It means to consider. Paul's warnings are not intended to cause us anxiety and depression. They're intended to cause us repentance and faith. So how this passage and how other warnings of Scripture affect us, hit us, should depend, depend uh, greatly upon who we are. If you are one who is prone to doubt your salvation, if you're one who's prone towards anxiety and fear, <coughs> excuse me, you need to hear the kindness of God. You need to consider the kindness of God. You need to consider His love. You need to go back to Romans 8 and read uh, the reality that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus and all things work together for good. But if that's not you, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you are prone to proudly presume upon God's grace, if you're prone towards arrogance and apathy towards the kingdom, then you need to think about the severity and the judgment of God. In other words, this passage would say, if you're contrite, if you're humble, then you have nothing to fear. But if, on the other hand, you're arrogant and proud, then you should fear. Not fear that you might lose your salvation, but rather fear that you were never saved in the first place. One more section. 23 through 24. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul's argument is simply that if God can graft unnatural branches onto a tree, how much more can he graft natural branches back onto the tree? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If a physician can graft skin from one person to another, how much more can he graft skin from your own body? In fact, there's a sense in which Paul, uh, Paul has already seen God do this. Paul himself is an example of this fact. 
As Paul is persecuting the church, he has been cut off. He is severed. He shares the same blood as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not the same belief. And yet on the road to Damascus, he encounters Christ. He is converted, and as a result, he is grafted back onto the olive tree. And he isn't the only one. We talked about that before. God hasn't washed his hands of Israel and said, I'm done with you. In fact, as we'll see later in chapter 11, it seems as though there will be a day in which a large, a significant portion of ethnic Jews will have the hardening decree lifted, will come to faith in uh, in Christ. And so this passage really helps us to avoid uh, two extremes as we think about Israel, even today, not only from a historical perspective, but even today. The first is this error of thinking that God has accepted Jews simply because of their Jewishness simply because of their ethnicity, simply because of their genealogy or their bloodline or something uh, like that. But this passage clearly says that there are Jews who do not love and trust Jesus and that those have been severed from the rich root of the patriarchs. There are teachers out there, there are theologians out there, there are churches out there that would promote what's called a a dual covenant uh, sort of theology which is the idea that Jews are saved by their Jewishness. They simply adhere to the Old Testament and God will save them. Whereas Christians adhere to the New Testament and God will save us. The Bible says, no, there are no two plans. There are no two paths. Christ is the only way to salvation. And so simply by virtue of your ethnicity, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you do not merit God's favor. That's the first error to avoid is thinking that God has accepted Jews simply because they're ethnically Jewish. Salvation is always by grace and not genealogy. Always by faith and not family. Always by election and not ethnicity. The second error that that the passage helps us to avoid is is thinking that God has rejected Jews simply because of their uh, Jewish ethnicity. This passage is not promoting anti-Semitism. The text clearly says that some can be grafted back onto the olive tree. And again, we've seen that happen uh, throughout history. So this is now about the 10th or so passage uh, that's dealing with Jewish-Gentile relations within the uh, early church. And so what is it that we do with, uh, with this passage? It seems like we're coming back to this theme over and over. But this week's passage in particular has this theme of arrogance, this theme of pride. And so uh, I think before we kind of turn our attention uh, to Christ in communion, I think it, this passage kind of calls for a bit of introspection. And so I want to ask a couple of questions and just ask you to ask yourself these questions. And here's what I want to request. The answers to this, these questions are really easy. If you just want to give the churchy answer, you're welcome to do that. But I'm not asking you if you know the right answer. I'm asking you if you feel the right answer. Like if you actually think the right answer. Not just that you can give it off the top of your head, but it actually comes uh, from your heart. And so I want to ask that you would really wrestle with your heart this morning. First question to ask. Is there anything about you which you think makes you more acceptable to God? more worthy of His grace. Think about that. Your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your family, your upbringing, your citizenship, your church attendance, the fact that you've memorized the entire Old Testament, you've never uttered a curse word, you've never taken a drink of an alcoholic beverage, you've never smoked a cigarette, 
You've never watched a rated R movie not starring Jim Caviezel as Jesus. You've been a member of church for 30 years or 40 years. You've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to churches and charities. Is there anything at all besides grace and grace alone which you think influences God's love for you? Second, is there anything about anyone else which you think disqualifies them from receiving God's grace? Their gender, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, their lack of church attendance, the fact that they can't even find the Old Testament. They've watched all the rated R movies. They've said all the curse words. They've imbibed all the alcoholic beverage. They've smoked more than cigarettes. Do you think that there is a level of obstinacy or a type of person that God just can't or He won't save? Your neighbor, your coworker, that politician that you really hate? Muslims? Mormons? Hindus? Or maybe you don't think that anyone is too far. You know that God could save. But perhaps there are types of people or even a particular person that you don't want to receive God's grace. You're like Jonah. You know that God will show mercy to Nineveh, and so you run to Tarshish. You don't want Muslims or Mormons or your dad or your ex-husband to be grafted in. So you can boast over them. If any of that resonates this morning, will you repent? Will you allow this passage to sever the root pride and graft you into grace so that you would boast in Christ, in Christ alone. So with that in mind, let's turn now to considering the kindness and severity of God in communion. Let's pray. Father, this passage at once seems distant and yet fear, near. Few of us uh, wrestle with boasting over Jews in our neighborhood or in this congregation, and yet every one of us knows the sting of pride and arrogance. So I pray that you would lead us to repentance, that you would teach us to fear, that you would teach us to boast only in grace. You would teach us how to look upon your kindness and your severity, that you would keep us in your kindness. Just confess that we're weak, we're in need of grace, and so we want to exult in your faithfulness to us because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.